1: Monday to Friday, Friday. 9 a.m. till 12 p.m. This is Today with Kino Kamis on Cape Talk. Oh, I like the sound of that. Anyway, uh, the sound that I love even more is the voice of Chris Smith. For a long time, I used to sit in my vehicle, listen to him answer all these questions that you put to him, and I just sit there being mesmerized, going, you know, maybe I should add my own uh, question or three so dr Christopher, thank you very much and what a privilege to be working with you good morning it's good to chat
2: to you again keynote
1: now things are certainly warming up in cape town and we received this question from a listener chris he says um hi there can someone please tell me what the link is between humidity and temperature
2: good morning lovely question What's humidity, first of all? Humidity is a measure of how much water there is in the air. Now, water, when it evaporates, turns into gas, water vapour. And that water vapour drifts around as water molecules, H2O, alongside the other gas molecules that we're breathing in, the 20% of the air that's oxygen that we need. Now, the reason that humidity is tied up with temperature is the warmer the air is, the higher the humidity can be because the air can sustain a higher amount of water because water wants to stick to other water molecules and form droplets and that happens more easily when the water molecules have less energy which is the lower temperature. So colder air is drier air, warmer air is wetter air. Why we feel a lot hotter though when we're in a humid environment is because one of our major mechanisms of heat control in the human body is sweating and the way sweating works is that the body diverts extra blood flow to the skin surface this blood radiates some heat into the skin but it also supplies sweat glands because sweat is made by sieving out some of the water which is in your blood and the water flows onto the skin surface as sweat and it then evaporates And it takes with it latent heat of evaporation. What that means is that in order for the water molecules to get enough energy to break the associations and bonds to other water molecules, they need energy so they can fly off away as individual molecules from your skin surface. Where do they get the energy from? They take it from your skin. So as the water molecules leave the body, they take energy, in other words, heat with them, and you cool down. Now it's easier for water molecules to go from a place where there's lots of water to a place where there's very little water because the chances of water making the journey back the other way are much lower. If it's really humid that means the air around your body already has lots of water molecules in it so it's harder for there to be a net movement of water from the body into the air. That process is slowed down. And as a result, it's harder for you to lose heat as quickly, so not surprisingly, you feel hotter and stickier and therefore more sluggish when the humidity is very high because your body's having to struggle to lose heat as efficiently as it would when the air's drier.
1: Okay, I'm still mesmerized (laughs) by how you know all these things. By the way, we're going to have to maybe at some stage talk about how you actually keep your mind as sharp as it is and how you actually know all the things that you do. But let's move on to Damien from Rondebosch. Is cooked meat or food healthier than the raw
2: version? I would imagine (laughs) it depends what type of meat we're talking about. But uh, your answer to that? Hello, Damien. The answer is like all these things, it depends. And if you've got certain foodstuffs, it's certainly superior if you cook them. And the reason that when humans first grasped how to use fire which as far as we know happened in in africa and quite possibly in southern africa and certainly more than a million years ago one of the major advantages of harnessing fire apart from for defense and protection and warmth was that you could cook food and humans effectively realized that this or early human ancestors realized this behavior could liberate more calories from certain foods than your body would be able to liberate from them if it ate them raw Cooking food also softens the food and makes it more digestible, which means your digestive juices have easier access to the calories that are locked away chemically in the food. So it's easier to liberate the energy and therefore you're going to have a better time in terms of extracting energy, growth and being successful in your environment. So certain foods do benefit from being cooked. The other major advantage, of course, is if you escalate the temperature of something, if there are microorganisms on there which are capable of infecting you, then the heat will degrade those microbes, knock them out, they can't infect you. If there are toxins in the food, which some microbes poison us by secreting toxins into the food, some of those toxins are susceptible to heating. So if you heat the food up, you destroy the toxins, again, it renders it safer. And probably these advantages of cooking became attractive to us because we like those sorts of flavours, and perhaps we like those sorts of flavours because cooking renders things safer and uh, more calorie enriched for us. So I think it's a sort of carton horse thing. We probably cook because it's safer, we cook because it liberates more calories, and we have evolved to appreciate the taste of cooked things, especially things cooked at more than 148.5 degrees, because that's the temperature at which the Maillard reaction kicks in. And the Maillard reaction is the reaction between the sugars and the proteins in food, making that beautiful brown, which when you eat something that's that's browned, apart from the caramelization reaction that's also there, it's, it's that lovely juicy extremely exquisite slightly burned taste and we find that really compelling we really like that flavor which is why people like fried and grilled food and that that is another marker that the food has been to a high enough temperature to have a liberated calories and b killed out knocked out microorganisms so i think probably you know there are some foods that definitely benefit from being cooked others on the other hand cook them too much you destroy all the micronutrients in them so vitamins good example of this so it's it's a balancing act and certainly if you if you overheat some of your food you will destroy the vitamins so some things it's better to cook them some things it's not better to cook them and it will depend on the context
1: the Maillard reaction. So if anybody wants to sound like John Matham in the kitchen and you're busy browning stuff, Chris has just given you an amazing tool. Just talk about the Maillard reaction and how that actually works in cooking. You will impress your friends. Let's go to Ross in Thornton. Ross, good morning. Good morning, yes. Uh, For many years I taught geography and I was um, lucky never to be asked this particular question about the moon. Um, Now that I've finished that part of my career... I'd like to know why it is that the moon, which is rotating, the Earth, which is rotating, why is it that the moon always has the same face towards the Earth? Surely that's an incredible coincidence. Surely it should be moving and sometime we should see the back end of the moon. I really have never understood that. Thank you for your question there, Ross. Chris?
2: First, just to clarify to, to what Ross is referring, The Moon always presents the same face towards the Earth. And this is because the Moon is turning at just the right rate so that as the Moon goes on its orbit around the Earth, which it does over the course of a one-month cycle, it's turning at just the right speed so that it always shows the same face to us. We never see the other side of the Moon. This is myth. It's a myth. It's wrong. People call this... Incorrectly, the dark side of the moon—it's dark in terms of our knowledge because we can't see it so well. But it's not dark because, of course, it actually gets more sunlight on that bit of the moon than the bit that's facing us. But we call it the dark side of the moon because we've never been there, or or, or at least a human has has not actually been been there very often. Obviously, the moon mission sent people around the moon, but you know we don't we don't see that bit of the moon from the Earth's surface. Now, this is a, a phenomenon of tidal locking. And actually, you get this quite a lot, where um, a a body, for various mathematical and physics reasons, ends up with the same face always pointing towards the parent body around which it orbits. And this has happened to the Moon. So the Moon presents the same face to us. And originally the Moon would have been spinning around a lot faster and and would have been a lot more disorganised than it is today, but because of tidal locking, the equations work out that the Moon now is locked into this orbital phase where it turns at just the right rate to present the same face to the Earth all the time.
1: Well, there we go. Ross, now you're able to explain it, sir. Yes, I've just got to find out about tidal locking now. Thank you so much. <laughs> as he squeezes it in there. You want to give that a go, Chris. Tidal locking.
2: Well, this is this is the effect that um as a, as an object orbits, then there's a a balancing act between how the energy is distributed in the thing which is turning in orbit and the thing around which it is orbiting and there is a sharing out or a balancing of energy between the two. The Earth is actually giving some of our rotational energy to the Moon which is why the Moon is moving away about two centimetres further from us every single year and we know that because people are bouncing laser beams off mirrors left on the surface by the Apollo missions and so we know that the Earth is giving the Moon some energy but it's because of the fact that the uh, there is this balancing act between the rotational energy of the moon and its orbit around the earth that it ends up where to keep the equations balanced you end up with something orbiting the way that the moon now does with this tidal lock pattern
1: monday to friday 9am till 12pm this is today with kino kamis on cape talk now, i love this question um, doesn't say. Listen, you must always try and put your name on this. I can tell Chris that the question comes from you, but it's for Chris, obviously. Why do we feel as if we're breathing in very
2: cold air after eating a menthol sweet? The reason for this is that in a mint, which has got menthol in it, that molecule that gives it the menthol flavor strongly activates a receptor on the surface of nerve fibres in your throat and your mouth and that receptor is called the TRIP-M8 receptor, TRP-M8 and it's activated normally by the cold. If you put menthol in your mouth, this fools that receptor into thinking it's a lot colder than it is. In other words, it sensitises cold-sensing nerve fibres to ambient temperature. So when you take a breath in, your body interprets the air As a lot colder than it really is because the nerves have been facilitated. They've been activated by the menthol molecule, so they fire more than they should do at that corresponding air temperature, fooling you into thinking your mouth has got colder than it really has. And I actually did the experiment about 10 years ago. We gave someone a load of mints to eat and then put a thermometer in their mouth when they were saying, yes, my mouth now feels colder when I breathe in. We measured the mouth temperature. There is no difference. Proving that this is your nervous system being fooled by the menthol molecule, it is no change in the way that the air is interacting with your mouth.
1: Now, Michelle, as in Balvo, Michelle, I'm glad you're asking this question. It happens to me all the time. Go for it.
3: <laughs> Does it really? <laughs>
2: Hi,
3: there <laughs> That gets me worried. Hi there, Chris. It's Michelle. Um, This has bugged me all my adult life. I would love to know why is it that when I'm putting on my eyeliner, I open up my mouth in some strange, I don't know, (laughs) yawn type... I don't know why it is that my, my mouth automatically opens
2: up when I put my makeup on. <laughs> Hi, Michelle. There are people all over Cape Town now who are literally doing that. I hope they're not driving at the same time. But everyone is sort of uh, tilting their face down, opening their mouth wide. I think there's a range of reasons for this. Um, one of these reasons is that in order to get your eyes into the right position and to stretch the skin... If you open your mouth, you will pull the skin a bit more taut, which makes it easier to apply these sorts of things. There's another phenomenon in the nervous system called facilitation, which is that when you make a movement, you don't just activate one tiny cluster of muscles which correspond to that movement. Actually, the nerve fibers that make a movement also project to and stimulate muscle groups which are in the same broad group of things that do the same broad group of movements all at the same time and a good example of this is although you might be reaching with your right hand to do something when you actually make those movements you're also activating to a lesser degree admittedly some of the nerve groups which control muscles in your legs or in your back so it changes your posture all over your body probably to balance you out so i suspect that when you're putting on your eyeliner, the movements you're making with your face in order to put your, your eyelids etc into all the right positions because those involve opening up the sorts of muscles that open up your eyes wide, the orbicularis oculi muscles so that you can go wide eyed to get the eyeliner on, they're the same muscle groups and behaviours and functions that make your mouth wide. So therefore you're facilitating the action of one group of muscles by co-activating the others and I suspect that's why. It's partly a skin sketch stretching thing, let's get the eyeliner on with, and, and uh, most easily But also you're facilitating other muscle groups that do complementary things, albeit in a slightly different part of the anatomy.
1: So, Michelle, thank you for the question. So keep doing what you do. eh? Bottom line. (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) There we go, Michelle in Balville. Let's go to Maxine in Lansdowne. Hi, Maxine.
3: Good morning, um, Kino and the Naked Scientist. I have questions and I will listen to uh, the answer of A. Um, I've had major surgery on the 18th of um, last month, and um, I want to know why do I suffer the worst side effects on the that you read on the package insert? Why does this happen to me? Um, I can the medication helps me for two or three days, mm-hmm. and then uh, suddenly I can't tolerate it anymore and um, I'm sitting with a mini, mini pharmacy here at home okay. um, like um, a box is opened, I've used four tablets and now I've got to take it back to the pharmacy because it's of no use to me I'm wasting the medical aid okay. and the list goes on and on it's a, it's a, my, okay. my, my doctor or my neurosurgeon already knows this woman must not have mybulin my, my husband can take my and my, my daughter sure. could take it when she was 12. With me, um, okay. there's an ingredient in me that um, makes me like, um, it turns into morphine in my body.
1: Okay. Maxine, I think what you were saying there, I'm, the reason why I am cutting the, the, the call short is because a lot of people with questions, and I think we've got the crux of your one. Why is she more susceptible to
2: side effects of a lot of medications than other people? Uh, Chris? Hello, Maxine. Sorry to hear about your your side effect trauma. The answer is that this is a really good example of what we call an idiosyncratic drug reaction. And the fact is that everybody is different. We all look different on the outside because we're genetically, unless you have a clone or an identical twin, we are all genetically distinct from each other. And just as we look different on the outside, biochemically, we're all a bit different on the inside. And what we currently do with our regimens when we go to the pharmacy is it's a bit like you're going to the shoe shop and saying can I have a pair of shoes and without measuring your feet or anything they take the first pair of shoes off the shelf and give them to you and you've got to try and ram your feet into pairs of shoes that might be too big, too small and just not very well fitting. We do that with drugs because we give people pills and say take these and we hope that they're going to fit their feet metaphorically speaking and these drugs... Because the the targets the drugs are recognising inside the body are all a bit different in all of us because we're genetically different, those drugs behave differently. It may be that the body's mechanisms for breaking down the drugs are different from one person to the next, so the drugs are present at higher or lower levels, respectively. It may be that the target the drug is binding to is different from one person to the next, so the drug works a bit better or a bit more powerfully in one person compared to the next. There's all these different things that, that at the moment because we have a relatively small repertoire of agents, and we don't really know how different agents interact with different people's makeup we are doing a a metabolic and medical guessing game. And as we move forward into the future, what we will be able to do is to do various very precise tests on people to work out what particular category of the population with respect to a certain set of drugs they fit into. And we will be able to prescribe far more precisely. This is sort of precision medicine, which will be borne out in in a personalised medicine way by better understanding of how the body works genetically and biochemically. But we're not anywhere near that yet. And we're nowhere near to be able to afford it yet either because this will come at very high cost, but it will minimize side effects.
1: Well, thank you very much for that question. That was Maxine in Lansdowne. Uh, Denise and Rhonda Bosch, good morning. Good
3: morning. Um, yeah, I'd like to know if wild animals snore. I have domestic animals and they snore like crazy. But surely if a wild animal would snore, it would give its position away, you know. And-
1: to a predator or to, you know, an, another apex predator?
2: That's a good question. Yeah, hi, hi Denise. The answer is that um, any animal can snore and the fact that domestica- domesticated animals do snore argues that certainly you, you will get animals in the wild that will snore but you're also quite right that there's a strong selective pressure not to snore or not to give the game away as to where you are too much. So I think it's probably one of these things that probably nature selects for animals that don't naturally snore but anatomically, the reason we snore is because our soft palate dangles down at the back of our our throat when we go to sleep, and because all the muscles relax, and it wafts around in the breeze as you breathe in. So you're gonna you're gonna have a high likelihood of being able to snore, even if you're a wild animal on the plains. But probably nature is trying to keep the amount of snoring and other giveaways of about your position to a minimum. So if you do, if you are born with an anatomy that makes you more likely to be a really bad snorer, you're probably going to turn into someone else's lunch more quickly than an animal that doesn't snore so much because it doesn't have that anatomy. So therefore, the animal that doesn't snore so much is probably going to have more offspring and therefore it'll have that anatomy that makes it less of a snorer. So probably nature's selecting against snoring, except in the human bedroom.
1: Always a pleasure, Dr Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist. Looking forward to next week.
0: Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK.